Uh, I'm very excited about uh, our presentation this morning, which is entitled, The One-Eyed King. The One-Eyed King. And now you're, you're starting to think, where is he going to go with this? Well, you just hang in there and you'll see exactly what I mean by the One-Eyed King. We're going to find out this morning that maybe some of us here are One-Eyed Kings. Uh, So before we get into God's word, let's have a word of prayer. I invite you to just bow your heads with me as we invite God's spirit to direct us in this study this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful opportunity to come together and study your word. We ask for your Holy Spirit to come and dwell with us, to be our teacher and our guide. I pray that you will speak through me to your people And we claim the promise of your word that your words of truth, that they will not return unto you void, but accomplish that in which you please. So be with us this morning, we pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And for his sake we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Acts. That's the book of Acts just after the Gospel of John. And uh, we have the story there of the early church, the story of the early disciples as they went into the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It is the story of power, a story of God working in those early believers. And in the, uh, at the outset of our presentation this morning, I would like to take a big picture at the book of Acts. I would like to uh, take a bird's perspective of the book of Acts as we just look at some of the snapshots of what God did in those early days of the Christian movement. So turn with me to, in your Bibles to the book of Acts and we're going to start right in the beginning in chapter 1 looking at verse 4. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. And when you're there, you can say, Amen. Amen. And being assembled together with them, he, talking about Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to do what? To wait for the promise of the Father. Here Jesus is gathered together with his disciples, and is just before he's going to ascend to heaven... So this is the last um, interaction between the disciples and Jesus here. And Jesus tells them that they are to wait in Jerusalem. They are to wait. Now look at verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus gives them the insurance that if, as they go back to Jerusalem and wait there, something special is going to happen. And he's going to pour out his Holy Spirit upon them. And they're going to go forth in mighty power, witnessing of what Jesus has taught them. Now look at verse 6. Look at the response of the disciples here. Verse 6 says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I want you to catch the significance of the words of the disciples here. Jesus has just told them that they were to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the outpouring of his spirit. And then they respond to Jesus and say, Are you going to right now set up your kingdom? They didn't really understand the 
words that were spoken to them and that even though they might have understand, understood the words they didn't really understand what God was about to do they believed that Jesus should, should put up his, set up his kingdom should um, raise up his kingdom right there and then and yet Jesus says in verse 7 he says to them it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's interesting the words in verse 7 for times and seasons are the Greek words uh, kairos and chronos from which we in English derive our word chronology. And so God is basically uh, revealing to the disciples, Jesus is revealing to the disciples the real chronology of how things are going to happen. See, the disciples had their own chronology. They believed that it was the right time for Jesus to set up his kingdom right there and then. And yet they had to step into the chronology of God, into the times and seasons of God. And that was that they were first to go back to Jerusalem and to have an experience there in the upper room. And through that experience, the Holy Spirit would be poured out. And then they would start preaching in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then into the uttermost parts of the earth. They were to step into the times and season of God. They were to step into the plan of God. And praise God, that's what they did. Praise God, that's what they did. And therefore, we have the rest of the book of Acts. As a consequence of the disciples stepping into God's plan. Stepping into God's time and season. And so, you continue there in the book of Acts. And in chapter 2, we read about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And and Peter's powerful sermon, which resulted in 3,000 souls being baptized. You go into Acts chapter 3 and you read about um, a lame man that is laying there at the entrance of the temple. And when Peter and John meet him, he asks for some money. And Peter and John, they respond to him and they say, silver and gold have we none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he gets up and he glorifies God and walks into the temple. And so you go on into the story of Acts. And in chapter 4 you read about how Peter and John are arrested. And brought before the religious authority of those days. Brought before the Sanhedrin. And yet the church continues to grow. They will not let the opposition crush this movement. And they continue to preach the name of Jesus in Jerusalem. In chapter 5, you read about how they are arrested again, and this time they're put into prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord comes, opens up the prison door. They move back uh, out of the prison into the temple, and the next morning they're preaching again. Can you imagine what a power that uh, was upon the disciples and the apostles as they went forward in the days of this early movement? You look at Acts chapter 6 and it talks about this devoted young man by the name of Stephen that stood up and preached with great power and healed those that had sickness. And then you read in chapter 7 and 7 how he was taken before the council of the Jews. And he was questioned as to what he was doing. And you read about his powerful, powerful testimony that he bears before the religious leaders of God's guidance in the past. And then he has a vision of Jesus as he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And, and, and the leaders take him and drag him out and they stone him to death. 
But then in the very next moment, you read in the very next chapter about a man that was witnessing that stoning, a man by the name of Saul, which is on his way to Damascus to capture the Christians in that city. And he has a vision of Jesus and he's knocked off his horse and he can't look into any direction, only at his own heart and realizes his need for Jesus, surrenders himself and becomes the mighty apostle Paul. And so you just have these miracles and powerful moments throughout the book of Acts. And it goes on and on and on. And then you come to chapter 17 and it gives this amazing testimony of what this early movement was like. If you turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts in the 17th chapter. And take a look at verse 5 to 7. What was the testimony of the early believers? Again, they find themselves here in opposition, uh, against opposition of, 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 of those in the city of Thessalonica that are um, wanting to stop the growth of this movement. And uh, we pick up the story here in Acts chapter 17 and verse 5. It says, But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, listen to what they're crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Isn't that an awesome testimony to have? Here are those that turn the world upside down. I wish that was said of the church of God today. I wish that was said of of, of this church, that we are actually turning this city, turning the world upside down. You know, I shared this, um, uh, this experience that I had in actually during uh, the series that we're, we're doing here uh, at the moment. But si- since uh, many of you uh, or several of you were not there, hint, hint, um, I would just repeat that illustration. Um, I was last year in the city of Vancouver and I was there because um, I was going to do some uh, filming for um, a Christian uh, broadcast, TV broadcast station. And uh, I flew into Canada and I landed in Vancouver. And I As I was standing there ready to go through customs, I saw this big screen up there and it was showing an ice hockey game. Now, um, Canada is really into ice hockey, and I was just watching the game, and I hadn't really, you know, uh, watched a lot of ice hockey before, and I was just looking at it and thinking to myself, if I would ever play that game, I would break every single bone in my body. I would break bones that I didn't even know that I had. And so you see them crashing against each other and here it's going on and on and, and everyone is just riveted on that screen. And then I come to the, to the man in the customs and I give him my passport and he seems to be more occupied with the game than with my passport. But eventually he passes it back to me and he says, um, he says uh, uh, just be careful in town tonight, just be careful in the city tonight. And I thought to myself, well, what's the big deal? I mean, it's only an ice hockey game, can't be, it can't be too much going on. Well, that evening we arrived at the hotel where we were staying. And uh, there was, as we walked in, um, there was a TV that was on with live footage of what was going on in downtown Vancouver. My friends, what we saw on that TV screen was a city turned upside down. 
Some of you will remember this in the news, right? I think, it was, I think it was worldwide news, actually. Vancouver was turned upside down. They were burning cars. They were burning police cars as well. They were looting shops. They were destroying everything. And the city was just absolutely in an uproar because of an ice hockey game. And I thought to myself, looking at that, I was reminded of this, what I read in the book of Acts chapter 17, where it talks about the disciples turning the world upside down. Now, the disciples did not do that by putting on fire uh, police cars of the Romans, the police wagons or whatever it was. They did it by some very different means, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ had such an impact that the Bible says in Acts chapter 17, the testimony of the disciples were that they turned the world upside down. And the question can be asked, is the world heading in the right direction? If, if, if we look at the world around us, it seems um, obvious that we're heading not quite in the right direction. And so it might be needed to turn the world upside down again. Right? 2,000 years into this movement, here we are um, at the end of time. And, and God is raising up a church. He's raising up a people. And He wants them to have the power of the gospel to be able to turn this world upside down. We should not be um, content with anything less. So often we are content with less because we have not seen this type of power. Now, um, as I was preparing this sermon, sometimes I share my thoughts with, uh, with my wife. And so I went to Sylvia and I said, I have, I have this great sermon on my mind. I'm going to go into the book of Acts and I'm going to give these little snapshots of these chapters and the power of the book of Acts. And then I'm going to ask the question, does our story fit into the book of Acts? And so I shared this with her and she turns to me and she says, that's going to make people feel bad. That's going to make people feel bad. Well, it's not my intention here this morning to make anyone necessarily feel bad. But what I do want to do this morning is make us think a little closer at the impact of Christianity, the impact of our personal faith in the world in which we live. The question is, are we seeing the power of acts around us? Are we seeing the power that, that, uh, that was, went with the disciples in the early movement? Do we see, still see that same power manifest in our world today? Well, you know, you have the saying, and that's from which I derived my title here this morning. You have the saying, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is... King. Have you heard of that saying before? You're, you're not, not quite. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Well, what does it mean? Uh, very simply, it means that those with no talent or ability consider even someone with little talent or ability to be special. Right? Or, to put it in a different way, among the disadvantaged, the one with the least disadvantage is the greatest. In the land of the blind, where no one can see at all, the one-eyed man, the man with one eye, is king. Right? That's a saying. It actually dates back to, um, to a man by the name of Erasmus in Rotterdam in the year 1510. So this saying has been, been around for a long time. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. 
king. Could it be that we um, are content with the situation in Christianity around us because everyone else is blind? And therefore, instead of comparing ourselves with the book of Acts, we compare ourselves with those around us. And, and, and because Christianity at large seems to be blind, if we are only seeing with one eye, then we look at the rest of the picture and we consider ourselves kings. Rather than comparing ourselves with the book of Acts and saying, hey, wait a minute, I don't see that same power. Now, first of all, we need to establish the fact, are we living in the land of the blind? Well, turn it with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And, and, and get me right, this is not a sermon to make you feel bad. This is a sermon that eventually, prayerfully, I hope, will be a great source of motivation and inspiration for us to truly enter into the story of Acts. Amen? So, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation, chapter 3, and beginning in verse 14. Revelation chapter 3 and beginning in verse 14. And this is the message to the seventh church, the message to the Laodicean church. And um, uh, for those of you that have studied Bible prophecy, you will know that uh, in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we find seven churches which in a remarkable way cover a panoramic picture and time span from the early church being the first church till the last movement of Christianity upon this earth being the seventh church. So what we're about to read is basically a description of Christianity at large just prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. And let's see if this description matches with what we see in Christianity today. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor. And what's the next word? Blind and naked. When we look at the description of Christianity, the description of the church, it is a description that they think they are rich, and yet in reality they are wretched, miserable, and then there's the word blind and naked. They are blind. They are not seeing things as they should see them. This is the church in which we are. This is the Christian world in which we live. And so we could say it this way. We are living in the land of the blind. Are you with me so far? We are living in the land of the blind. And then the question is, um, when we read this text, Revelation chapter 3, and we read the description of the Laodicean church, I think many of us, when we read that, we're thinking to ourselves, I sense the danger of this state of being, and I don't want to be like this, and therefore I want to be aware of my needs. How many of you, as you read that text, are thinking like that? Like, I, I, this is not the state I want to be in. I hope all hands are going up. You're not, very, you're not very active today. How many of you, you want to be in this state? No. Well, put your hand up then. 
Whoa. <laughs> so, so we realize the danger of Laodiceanism, if that's a word, and we understand our need to not be like that. And so we're living in the land of the blind, but to an extent we can see the danger, because what does it say about the Laodicean church? It says that in verse 17, they say the following, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. So the Laodicean state is that they think that they're perfectly okay. Many of you just put your hand up saying that I don't think I'm perfectly okay. As a matter of fact, I don't want to be in that state. And so you're already put yourself in a position where you believe that you are seeing something that Laodicea is not seeing. Are you with me? The question is, are we seeing with one eye or are we seeing with two eyes? Could it be that in the land of the blind, we are content with seeing with one eye? As the saying goes, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is what? Is king. Now, uh, when you feel like a king, you're pretty content with your situation. Laodicea is content with blindness, but there is a danger of being content with a partial picture of God. A partial picture of our mission and purpose in this world. We can be content because we are seeing at least a lot more than others are seeing. But maybe we're just seeing with one eye. Maybe God wants to give us so much more. Maybe if we start comparing ourselves not with Laodicea around us. But with the book of Acts. We're going to start seeing that there's actually a lot more that we need to experience. Of the power of God. Are you with me? Does this make sense? So the question is, are we comparing ourselves with the land of the blind and being content with a partial vision? Or are we comparing ourselves with the book of Acts and asking God to allow us to enter into that story? Right? In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Now, if you today merely believe that the Bible is the inherent word of God and that it is a revelation to us, then you are already seeing a lot more than those around you in the Christian world. As a matter of fact, Christianity at large no longer believes the word of God in many places, this is the case, to be the actual revelation of God. That's, the, that's where we have come uh, in, in, in society. This is where the church has come. As a matter of fact, um, I was uh, on a plane not so long ago. Um, Sylvia and I were, were on a plane and um, we meet this man and uh, we get into conversation with him and a way opened up for us to, to witness uh, a little bit to him. And um, as we were sharing a little bit about what we do and about our faith, he asks the question, so let me get this right, he says. You actually believe the Bible to be true? I mean, uh, let me just really get this right. You believe this book to be true? And so we said yes. And you know what he answered? You're the first Christian that I've met that actually believes that book. Is that where Christianity has come? And if Christianity has come there, then we are without doubt living in the land of the blind. And so if you just merely believe in the Bible, you are already king in the land of the blind. Are you with me? You're already a king. Now, if you believe in a six-day creation, how many of you believe in a literal six-day creation? 
Okay, you're a king in the land of the blind. Because Christianity at large no longer believes in the creation as a literal six-day succession of 24 hours. I mean, these are eons of time. We, we hear about, you know, theistic evolution and, and all this kind of, you know, stuff that has come into the Christian church. And therefore, merely believing in creation, you're a king in the land of the blind. How many of you believe that there was a literal flood in the days of Noah? Oh, you're a king in the land of the blind. Because in Christianity at large today, the majority, of believe, the majority of Christians don't believe in a literal flood anymore. As a matter of fact, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are often just, uh, you know, they're just reasoned away. As being fables and stories and poems and all these kind of things. If you merely believe that Jesus has risen from the grave... Do you know that even there, you're becoming a king in the land of the blind? Do you know that there are theologians that are questioning the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I mean, there are so many areas in which Christianity has moved away from the clear revelation of God's word that we are certainly, no doubt, living in the land of the blind. And therefore, with our simple beliefs, we become kings in this land. The danger is that we start comparing ourselves with the blind world or the blind church in which we are, the blind Christian community in which we are, and then what happens is we think we're doing very, very well. Look at this blindness. I mean, they don't even believe in the creation. They don't even believe in the flood. They don't even believe in the Sabbath. Look, we are kings in the land of the blind. The question is, there is a danger there of being content with being a one-eyed king. Right? We need to start comparing ourselves with the story of the early disciples of how this movement began. And when I read the book of Acts, ah, I start questioning and I start thinking and I start pleading with God, God, give me power, give me strength, give me the experiences that you gave to your disciples. I don't want to be content with seeing with one eye. I want to have a full vision of your glory. I want to have a full vision of your purpose for me in this world. That's the type of questions we need to ask. The plea that needs to come from our lips as we compare ourselves, not with the blind land in which we live, but rather with the glorious picture that God has given us of His early movement in the book of Acts. I remember very well when, uh, when I decided to go to a Bible college uh, to be trained to, to do evangelism and do the work that I'm doing now. I remember when I broke the news um, in my church where I was going. Um, I thank God for, for those that, that supported me in this decision. I thank God for the encouragement that I received. But that encouragement was not from everyone. As a matter of fact, there were individuals that came to me and they said to me, Daniel, now you're just getting a little bit too radical. Now you're just going a little bit too far. I mean, how are you going to support yourself? And how are you going to do this? And how are you going to do that? And all these questions. And I thought to myself, you know, if I would compare myself with the church, it would be easy to say, yeah, at least I'm doing something. So, you know, I'm a king here in the land of the blind. But if I would just take my experience of deciding to go to a Bible school, and I would take that and put that into the story of Acts, there would be nothing there would be nothing um, uh, strange about that. 
There would be nothing unnormal about that. As a matter of fact, it might be quite a tame experience that might not even be mentioned in the book of Acts. You see where I'm going with this? I, I thought to myself, you know, why, don't, why don't I just take that and put that in the book of Acts? You, know, you read in the book of Acts about um, Stephen being stoned to death. And then you read about Saul that had a vision of Christ and became Paul the mighty apostle. You read about all these miracles of, 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 of um, the deaf that received their ability to hear. You read about those that were blind, that could see. About the sick that were, um, uh, that were recovered and healed. And you read about these experiences. If I would just take my experience of deciding to go to a Bible school. And what if it was right there in the story of Acts? Like, I don't know, right between Stephen being stoned and, and Saul receiving a vision. Like Daniel went to a Bible school. Would you be reading that and going like, now that is radical. Let me get my highlighter. I'm going to preach on that next Sabbath. Now that would be, that, that would be nothing radical in the story. But was it radical in the land of the blind? Oh yes. I mean if everyone's blind and someone wants suddenly to do something, hey wait a minute, that, that, where are you going? What are you doing? You see, what are we comparing our experience with? Are we comparing it with the Christianity at large? Or are we comparing it with the early movement that is revealed in Scripture? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. You know, uh, people say that um, the best sight is hindsight. Looking back, you know, we live uh, life forwards but understand it backwards. And uh, indeed, when you look back, it is really, you, you, you look at the church of God and how it grew and, and, and what happened over the centuries. And it's interesting that when you look at the various uh, epochs or chapters of church history, there are very powerful chapters, like the first one when you, when you look at the early church, the first century. But then as you continue in uh, church history and you look at some of the other chapters, there are some that are embarrassing. There are some that are really, you look back and you wonder why the Christians living at the time could ever think and do what they were thinking and doing. Are you with me? So, so with, with, with our perspective of 2,000 years of Christian history, we can look back and we can say, wow, that was a powerful period. We can say, oh wow, that was a dark period. Oh wow, that, that, that was amazing. How could they think like that? How could they do that? And, and, you, and we can look back, right? Uh, for, for example, as I, I love church history, by the way. I just love reading about uh, the experiences of God's people throughout the ages. Uh, but you know, there are indeed some embarrassing chapters in church history. Um, for example, in Europe, you can go to churches in Europe, old, old buildings, old uh, cathedrals and churches, and you will find that in the front, the seats are very nice, and in the back, they're not so nice. Do you know why that is? Because those that paid most could sit in the front. It's serious, I'm not kidding. And you think to yourself, that's a chapter in church history. And now, and at that time, it was normal. It, that's just the way things were. You paid more money, you had the best seats in the front. You, you didn't have so much wealth, you sat in the back. And, and now, fast forward, and here we are 2,000 years later, and we look back and we say, now that is strange. Now that is weird. How could they think like that? How could they do like that? And yet at that time, it was normality. You know, you look at other, other churches you, could, you go to in Europe. Do you know that there are churches in Europe where you have what they call squint holes? And what it meant is that outside, the beggars and people they didn't want inside could look through the wall and follow along with the service. Now, 
And you th- and we think now, how could they ever think like that? And yet at that time, it was normal. You know, and, and you look at, you look at other things, you know, you look at, um, there was one time that the church, during, uh, during its, its, its history, there was a period that the church actually favored slavery. And you think to yourself, how could, could a movement professing to be a church, a movement professing to follow Christ, engage in such things? And there are so many examples that we could, that we could bring up here. Uh, one example that really struck me, uh, the horrifying story of a church during the Holocaust, during the Second World War. Um, a man by the name of Erwin Lutzer, which was an evangelical pastor of the Moody Church in Illinois, Chicago, he wrote a book in which he records the story of a young man during the Holocaust. Now listen to this. Um, he he, he um, uh, reveals his story of how his church was back to uh, back with a railroad track and every Sunday morning as they would gather for worship they would hear a train loaded with Jews that would pass by and they could literally hear them screaming. And he reports here, he, 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 as he's reviewing upon this time, he says the following. In order to drain out the sound of screaming, the church would sing louder and louder. And this young man, he records years later how these sounds are just haunting him. And he's asking the questions, how on earth could we ever think like that? How on earth could we ever do the things that we did? And there are many chapters in church history that we look back on and we wonder, what were they thinking? Why did they say those things? Why did they do those things? But then suddenly, as I was studying into these various examples here and illustrations here of what really took place, these are true stories, I thought to myself, What if the church goes on, and let's just say for a moment that Jesus does not come back in our generation. If we go on for another 50 years or 100 years, and they turn around and they review the church in the 21st century. They review the church in the early 21st century, 2011, 2012, 2013. What is strange about us? What are they going to look back on and they're going to go like, now that was absolutely weird that they could think like that. You know, what would it be that we are living in and considering to be normal that is absolutely abnormal when we compare ourselves with the story of Acts? And I think to myself, how often are we watching the clock when the sermon is going on? Now that is weird. They were actually looking at their watches when the sermon was going on. Now that is strange. They actually, they, and they, they would get upset if the sermon went longer than 20 minutes. But Friday evening they could watch a movie of two and a half hours. Right? I mean, this is weird. This is abnormal. A church that actually wants to put a limit to how long a message can go. I mean, and I understand, you know, you don't want to tax people and burden people and, and you know, oh, we can only, we can only really uh, intellectually follow for 20 minutes. Yeah, right. How many of you are still with me today? Okay, good. We're beyond 20 minutes. 
We don't zone out after 20 minutes, by the way. If the Word of God is a living force in our lives, we're going to be able to listen to it longer than 20 minutes. We're going to, we're going to want everything in it because it is power. It gives us strength. It renews us. It, remo- it removes the obstacles in our life. It gives us focus and vision. Amen? What is weird about us? <laughs> what is weird about us? They look back... that's so weird they actually believe that they turned the city upside down by having a non-smoking seminar once in a decade what is that is so weird they actually believe that they were the remnant people of God because they went to church on the right day and paid tithe and didn't eat pork the new three angels messages don't eat pork go to church on the right day and um, pay your tithe My friends, this is in the land of the blind, the one-eyed king, the one-eyed man is king, right? And yet we are not to be content with the situation we are in as a movement, but rather compare ourselves to the story of Acts and say, hey, this is a power that we need. And I don't want to be content with merely the formality of, of, of the Christian religion. And bringing it closer home now to our own denomination. I don't want to be only content with the formality of my Adventist faith. And of course it's good. We should not eat pork and we should pay tithe and we should go to church on the right day. These are all uh, great things. But my friends, it is easy to be content as a one-eyed king. Right? Without tapping into the power and force of the story of the book of Acts and asking God to write new chapters about God's movement today. I firmly believe that the book of Acts is an unfinished book. We have 28 chapters here in scripture, but I believe that it is an unfinished book. I believe that God in heaven is writing the book of Acts. Why would he stop after the first century? I believe that the book of Acts involves all of God's children, all of God's people throughout the Christian era, the Christian ages, as they have sought to put Him on display. And what a thought that right now the book of Acts is being written and you might just be in one of those chapters. And one day when Jesus Christ comes, we're going to have the full, um, we're going to have the, the, the ability to look into the full edition of the book of Acts. You know, and maybe there on, 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 in, in chapter 5,564, there's going to be a story about you that impacted your neighbor. There's going to be a story about you that shared at your job. There's going to be a story about you that gave that piece of literature to that person that was in need. There's going to be a story about you that took the phone and called that person when they needed you most and encouraged them and inspired them. There are going to be stories that we are going to be able to look at. They are being written right now. But the question is, are we kings in the land of the blind, looking with one eye, thinking we're fine? Or are we actually... Seeking for God's power and strength to continue to write the book of Acts. I pray that you will search in your own heart and mind and ask God to reveal in which ways you can be a powerful instrument in this world in which you live. So that you will be able to turn things upside down. That you will be able to impact people's lives around you with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the solution for a one-eyed king? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. 
and verse 18. Because my friends, there is hope. There is hope indeed. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 18. Listen to the words of Jesus to the Laodicean church, the blind church. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And do what? Anoint your eyes with eye self that you may see. Anoint your eyes with eye self that you may see. My friends, Jesus has the remedy for the Laodicean church. He has the remedy for each one of us. And my friends, those that are blind, they need the anointing of the eye self. And those that see with one eye, they also need the anointing with the eye self. Amen? We need a second touch in order to see as God wants us to see. There's a miracle that illustrates this so well. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark. The book of Mark and chapter 8. Mark and chapter 8. And take notice of this incredible miracle. We pick it up in verse 22. Mark the 8th chapter beginning in verse 22. Listen to what it says. Then he came to Bethsaida, Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Verse 24. And he, the blind man, looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. I see men like trees walking. Verse 25. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And I've wondered about that miracle I've wondered if, you know, what's going on? Is, is, is the first touch of Jesus not enough? Did he fail in his first attempt to cure the man? And did he need to, to do something again? Or is there a larger, deeper lesson in this miracle for us? I believe there is. My friends, the fact that you are sitting here this morning is evident that God has touched you. The fact that you are here this morning is evident that God has allowed you to see things that others around you are not yet seeing. The fact that you belong to this movement is the gracious act of God in bringing his oracles of truth into your life so that you can see the world in a different way. That you can understand what is going on in our world and that you can understand God's purpose for you in this world. You are seeing, but the question is, how well are you seeing? We need the continual touch of Jesus to see with clarity. Amen? And we should not be content with merely a partial vision. Oh, the one-eyed man is king in the land of the blind. And yet he is only partially seeing. 
We are living in a blind world. The Christian world at large is blind. And we might be content with seeing partial. But my appeal to you this morning is that you will allow Jesus to touch you a second time, a third time, a fourth time. That you will continue to receive his word and his touch of healing so that you will be able to see as he wants you to see. That you will be able to look at the world as God looks at the world. Amen? That you will receive the second touch. You know, sometimes, um, actually early in the morning when I find myself in airports needing to fly out early in the morning, um, I actually have a hard time with, with always with reading what is on the screen of the departure times and stuff like that and the gates. And, uh, and then I say, I ask my wife, can I borrow your glasses for a moment? And I put her glasses on. Oh, okay, I know where to go. And she, she, she thinks I'm living in denial that I need glasses. But I just don't want glasses and so I'm doing fine. I see every one of you here this morning so don't go asleep, I see you. But, but, but you know, this, this partialness of seeing in the spiritual world is so prominent in Christianity. We are happy because at least I believe in creation and at least I believe in the Sabbath and at least I believe that the word is inspired and actually I have a devotional life which Christianity at large no longer really has and so I'm a one-eyed king in the land of the blind but my friends, Jesus wants to touch you with his healing power. He wants to open that other eye and he wants to bring you into the story of Acts so that you can start writing chapters of experiences of the power of Christ in our very generation. And so God invites us into this experience. One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis, it says that he says the following, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. My friends, the sun of the gospel has risen and by it you will be able to see everything else. Amen? That's the power of God's word. That's the power of Christianity. Turn with me to our scripture reading of this morning, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Don't worry, I'm not going to go a lot longer than this. But remember the story of the 20 minutes. Don't forget that one. So um, if anyone thinks it's too long, I've already put a, put a part of the message in there that, you know, that just does away with all the arguments. Alright, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Listen to what it says. Because this is of great importance. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. This is instruction to us personally today. Let us consider one another in order to do what? In order to? To stir up what? Love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another. In other words, encouraging one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. My friends, we are to encourage one another and to stir, stir up stir up good works and love in one another so that we can actually write these chapters in the book of Acts. It is so easy for us to want to see and yet not consider those around us. You know, and, and it's very easy for us to want to normalize 
those around us like, you know, if everyone's blind, then you better be blind as well. And if everyone is a one-eyed king, then you better be a one-eyed king too. Uh, but when, once when, when someone has the anointing touch of Christ and sees things more clearly, this becomes very difficult to the blind and the one-eyed kings. But my friends, the Bible tells us that we are to encourage and exhort one another. In other words, if I am a one-eyed king, I should not want you to be a one-eyed king as well. I want you to have a full experience of seeing as Christ wants you to see. Amen? I don't want to make one-eyed kings. I don't want to make people blind just because I am blind. I want to make people see. And so we should create an atmosphere in the church in which we are encouraging people to receive the healing of Jesus in order to see. We should be, we should be creating an environment of people seeing and not people that are blind or one-eyed kings. Amen? Exhort one another. Encourage one another. You know, uh, we actually talked a little bit uh, about this during the study hour. And I thought to myself, there's one individual that has inspired me greatly in the book of Acts. As to the gift that he had of encouraging others. It is a character that you don't read a lot about. It is the partner or the the co-laborer with Paul. And that is Barnabas. Now you look at Barnabas, the co-laborer with Paul, and you read a lot more about the power of Paul and, and, and how he went forth with great boldness preaching the gospel. But you study the character of Barnabas and you will find out that he has a remarkable gift and that is of encouragement. You know what happens? At one point, there is this young man by the name of uh, John Mark and uh, he wants to join Paul and Barnabas on a mission trip. He lives with his mother in Jerusalem and he hears about the mission stories. And by the way, in the mission stories, you always hear about the highlights, um, but you don't always hear about the uh, difficulties and challenges. And so he, he, he must have heard about all the great things that were going on. And so he signs up for a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas. How many of you would like to go on a mission trip with Paul? Wow. I don't know. Um, This is what you would experience. Paul is, at one point, he was um, shipwrecked. Not just on on one occasion, by the way. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was persecuted. All these things he is experiencing. And this young man, John Mark, is on this journey with Barnabas and Paul experiencing these things. And this was just not what he had signed up for. This just, he was a timid and shy personality and, and this was just a little bit too much. I mean, you can imagine a mission trip with Paul. You know, at one point, he preaches the gospel and they get angry at him and so they throw stones at him. He's stoned and you can just th- think and, 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 you know, imagine this picture. Here's a pile of rocks and uh, the disciples are standing around him and guessing like, well, I, uh, the story's over. And then suddenly the, the pile of rocks starts moving and Paul gets up Let's go to the next town. I mean, absolutely remarkable to read about those experiences that he had. And so John Mark, it just gets a little bit too much for him. And so he decides to go back to Jerusalem. And Paul thinks to himself, well, you know, we can't use such coward, a coward guy like that. So, uh, you know, and he continues in the work. Later, John Mark comes back to Paul and Barnabas and says, can I go with you again? Give me a second try. And uh, Paul says, no way. 
We're not having you on this trip. Barnabas says, yes, let's take him. Let's give him another opportunity. Let's encourage him. Let's exhort him. Let's steer up love and good works. And that's what Barnabas does. Now it came to such a contention between Paul and Barnabas that they went their separate ways. And so Barnabas takes John Mark under his wings, mentors him, instructs him, inspires him, motivates him. And John Mark becomes a powerful tool in the hands of God. And you read later on that that Paul, when he's imprisoned, who do you think he's asking for? He asks for John Mark. My friends, how often have we looked at each other and put off one another because things have happened that are displeasing to us? How many times have we, have we given someone one chance, but that's all that we give them? I believe in order to enter into the story of Acts, in order to create an environment in God's church where we are seeing with both eyes, we need to do what? We need to steer up love and good works in one another. We need to encourage one another and we need to give one another second chances. Are you with me? It is so easy that we put one another off because of ways in which we might work that differ. You know, there was one instance where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, we saw a man that was casting out demons in your name, but he's not with us and so we forbid him. Do you know what Jesus answers? He that is not against us is with us. Why don't we pray for that attitude? Amen? To have the spirit of unity, to have the spirit of uh, the spiritual gifts being flourishing in God's movement, we're going to have to come into unity in which we were going to provoke one another and steer up love and good works in one another and encourage and exhort one another and give each other second chances. Amen? So that his work can prosper, his work can grow. And so that we can create an environment, not of the blind, in which maybe one or two are having an eye open and content with that condition. No, now we are creating an environment in which everyone is seeing and everyone is active and everyone is writing a chapter in the book of Acts. Amen? That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for each one of us to enter into that experience. And I want to close with a verse that is found in the book of Malachi. This promise I want to leave with you this morning. Turn to the last book in the Old Testament. The book of Malachi. Chapter 3 and verse 16. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16. What a great promise that we've been given here. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. It's my prayer that as we encourage one another, as we exhort one another, as we steer up good works and love in one another, that God will be listening. He has given us the assurance that he is listening and writing a book of remembrance of those things that are spoken to one another so that we can create a land 
where there are no blind. Amen? That we can create a land where the healing touch of Jesus has permeated every single member of his body. And where we can create an environment where we are writing the story and finishing the race that we are called to finish. So this is my prayer for each one of you, that we will enter into that experience. And may we see the power of God in our lives. May we experience the Holy Spirit right here and right now. Amen? Let's pray that that will be our experience. Let's, let's bow together. Let's kneel as far as possible as we, as we close. Father in heaven, we thank you for your promise this morning. The promise that you are writing a book of remembrance about the very things that is going on in your movement today. Lord, we want to be amongst those that will encourage, exhort, that will inspire, and that will give second chances, and third chances, and fourth chances. That we will be an inclusive movement, not making people like ourselves blind or seeing with one eye. But Lord, creating an environment and a church and a movement where your healing touch can make us see. So that we will look around us and experience your power. That we will see the story of Acts continued in our lives. Father, we pray for this experience. And we pray that that healing will begin very personally with each one of us. And thank you, Lord, that you want to do so much through each of us. Help us to be able to detect the ways in which we can be a blessing to those around us. Even when, it is, when, even when talking about the very small things of life. May we be able to put you on display for the one that you are. Thank you so much for being with us here this morning. Thank you for the power of your word. May it not return unto you void, but accomplish in that which you please. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.